In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, we live in a world that puts a premium on being authentic or showing your true self. But what exactly is your authentic and true self? For example, let's say you're naturally a curmudgeon. That's your natural tendency to be. But you've made a concerted effort to be more kind and generous. Which one is your true self, your natural curmudgeon side or your kind of generous side? Which one is the real you? Well, my guest has grappled with those questions for most of his career as a psychologist with a focus on personality research. His name is Brian Little, and he's the author of Me, Myself, and Us, The Science of Personality and the Art of Wellbeing, as well as his recently published book, Who Are You Really? Today on the show, Brian and I have a fascinating discussion on the world of personality science that will leave you wondering who you really are. We begin our conversation discussing the various factors that influence our personality including genetics, social environments, and self-direction. And then Brian digs into the debate on whether our personalities are set into stone or if we can change them even as we get into old age. We then discuss whether personality tests like the Myers-Briggs assessment actually tell you anything about your personality and if there are better personality assessments out there. Uh, We end our conversation discussing how simply changing environments can change our personalities, how we can willfully change them ourselves, and what the real you actually is. Stay tuned for an enlightening existential conversation that also provides actionable insights on how you can live a more flourishing life. After the show's over, check out the show notes at awim.is slash personality. Brian Little, welcome to the show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Uh, So you wrote a book that I really enjoyed it because it's a topic that I think fascinates a lot of people. It's personality. You're a psychologist who specializes in the science of personality. I'm curious, what got you started researching personality? Well, as an undergraduate, I, I was toggling back and forth between the the physical sciences and the biological sciences and the humanities. And I, uh, I loved all of them. And when I found psychology, I found that um, I was able to invest in both the, the, the science fields and the humanities. And within psychology, the field of personality was, was particularly uh, convivial to me because uh, in the morning I could read about neurons, in the afternoon about uh, narratives, and the full canvas that that field offered up was uh, really quite beguiling to me. And so let's let's talk about what personality is because I know like I'm fascinated with I know people other people are fascinated with it because of like personality tests and you know this idea that we can figure out like what you know what is us and you know what that means and we can determine our careers based on our personality but from a psych- from a scientific perspective what exactly is personality <clears throat> it's best described as the distinctive ways in which our behavior and preferences and motives distinguish ourselves from other individuals. It's nicely captured in a phrase that one of the founders of the field, Henry Murray, and a colleague of his coined, which was that each of us is in certain respects, like all other people, 
like some other people and like no other person. And the personality psychologist is interested in the way we're like all other people and that they trace some of the roots of personality back to our evolutionary background and so on. We're interested in how we're like some other people in terms of the various tests that look at what we call individual differences and the the traits of personality and so on. And like no other person, which happens to be the area that I'm most interested in, which, which looks at the singular way in which we approach our world and in which we uh, construct a life for ourselves. And so all of those touch on issues that uh, you can hear discussed in the bar, you can hear discussed at home, around the table. And uh, it's enduringly fascinating as a field. Yeah, and it's been, the, the, the area of personality has been, I mean, the research goes back like all the way to the ancient Greeks, you know, they thought personality came from your humors. Yes. <laughs> so a mixture of your bile. So during that time of just the study of personality, what have been some of the theories as to why people have the personality they do? What are the different theories out there? Yeah, the, um, the modern study, the modern academic study of personality really dates back to uh, the early decades of the 20th century. And um, though, as you say, the the ancient Greeks weighed in with speculations about human personality, but within the academic field and the more scientific analysis of personality, there were two major perspectives or slants on the field. One was what I call the biogenic, which stressed that we are the products of biological neurochemical and other influences that shape our behavior and make us who we are. And the other was the more um, cultural or social constructivist views, which said that we are and become what we have been taught by the cultural codes we, um, we are socialized into and, and so on. And now the old nurture nature debate is, is over. I mean, we now realize that, that they transact, that the biological, or again, I like to use the term biogenic, meaning rooted in biological factors, is influenced um, very much by our environments, even our intrauterine environment, and, and vice versa, that, that our, um, our nurture is shaped in part by the kind of uh, biological creature we are. So they interact or even transact in ways that um, raise a whole new set of issues for studying personality. So it's hard to say which one has the most, because I've heard the thrown out the number out, like, oh, 60% of your personality is genetic and 40% is environmental. Is is that a hard, fast thing, or is it, is it, is it more mushy? I wouldn't call it mushy in that the kind of statistical analysis and, and uh, genetic analysis that is done is, is um, pretty rigorous. I think it's a bit more complex than that. And I would probably put it more at 50-50. It depends on what kind of traits you're, you're looking at, but somewhere between 40 and 60%. But why they are more complex than that, why the relations are more complex, is precisely because there are shifts that can occur when the genetic propensity interacts with certain situations or contextual features. As I say, even in the 
in intrauterine existence, if you have a, a, a mother who's, who's starving, uh, the expression of genes that might come in that might potentially influence the, the child are going to um, not be expressed depending upon the uh, environmental factors in the, uh, in the, in the family, in the mother, and, and so on. And so I think that there is, um, I think it's helpful to realize that there are biogenic influences and that they're substantial, but they're not immutable. Height is very highly um, genetic, and yet you see massive population changes in height as a function of greater uh, nutritional needs being satisfied and, and so on. So uh, I think as long as we don't assume that that, that genetic influence is, is forever fixed, it's informative. Okay. So you can play around with it. There's like the epi- you were just describing epigenetics. So there's things we can do proactively, but also just in our, our environment can affect our personality. Yes. Well, correct. You start off the book talking about talking about personality, this idea of a personal construct. And I guess the the takeaway I got from that was that personal construct is like how you see yourself. Is that what that is? <clears throat> it's 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 a little broader than that. It's it's how you see um, your world, including yourself. And most of the research that has been done within the personal construct tradition has looked at um, how we construe others and how we construe what's happening to ourselves in our life. And I give an example within, the, uh, within that chapter of a, a person who used many different labels for describing other individuals. But when we look at the deep structure underlying it, that guy had one big personal construct with respect to seeing himself and others. And that was whether they're in the army or they're not in the army. And in a way, the person who developed this uh, way of looking at personality, George Kelly, used to say, you are your constructs. And in many ways, that fellow was that construct. He was for a time in the army and he judged individuals and he judged his life in terms of whether it related to the army or not to the army. And um, it, um, it dominated his personality and it helped explain some of the things that happened in his life. And as I relate in that chapter, he got dismissed from uh, the ROTC program and uh, ended up not being in the army and he collapsed. His whole psychological structure had collapsed because it had been invalidated. George Kelly used to argue that um, personal constructs are like goggles, but they're also predictions. And we're like scientists. We erect these hypotheses. And if they work fine, and if they make sense of what we're doing, we keep them. But if they don't predict, like a good scientist, you change the construct. But sometimes there's enormous resistance to changing a construct. And in his case, when he realized he was not in the army any longer and his core identity had been challenged, he was flooded with anxiety and, and life did not go, go well for him. So the lesson there is you don't 
just want to put all your eggs in one basket when it comes to your personal construct. You want multiple. I think that's that's a good way of putting it. I think that even though you may have many constructs, which is adaptive, they need to be related to each other in ways that provide some structure. Otherwise, you get chaos. And so I think that looking at it as, as, um, as, as a, an intricate pattern of independent constructs that have a particular range of convenience, as we say, to anticipate uh, certain events. And for some individuals, uh, the events that they have complex constructs about are quite different than for others. And when I did my own work many, many years ago on uh, what I called specialization theory, I distinguished those who have uh, elaborated constructs with respect to other people. But when it comes to physical objects, things in their environment, wow, they're pretty simplistic and vice versa. And so I talked about person specialists and thing specialists and that, um, that, ends up raising some really interesting questions about career choice and sex differences and so on. Yeah, uh, I'd like to get that, dig in that a little bit deeper here, but I love this idea of of being, I mean, I guess when I read that chapter, the example I thought that came to my mind was a man who made his whole identity his job and he loses his job. It's just like this army guy um, and then his whole world collapses. And I guess there's this idea, instead of thinking about that you're your job, you should have some sort of higher purpose. Like you have a calling to be a teacher. So you might lose your you know, teaching job in a company. Maybe you're an instructor or facilitator. That's okay because you're still a teacher. You can go find another teaching job. Yeah, that's a, that's a lovely example. Or you can uh, think of the individual who is working uh, on a, a building and all he's doing is putting one brick in at a time and he could identify uh, his construct, could see him as simply putting one brick after another, or you could see him uh, and he could see himself as building a cathedral. Or as a recent article in um, the organizational behavior field puts it by Andrew Carton that the individual... Um, who is sweeping the floors at NASA could construe himself as landing a, a man on the moon. Right. And then also having, you know, not only having like a broad personal construct, but also having multiple personal constructs. So don't just see yourself as a worker, see yourself, well, I didn't, f- I failed in my job. Like that didn't work out, but I, I have a great family and don't discount that. And so going back to this idea of, of person special, personal specialists and thing specialists. So, Personal specialists are, are people who, I guess, do well with interpersonal relations, right? Yeah, they also have some really interesting interaction characteristics. For example, we found that uh, those who score high on a measure of person orientation, uh, when they're interacting with others, they're more expressive, their faces show greater expressivity, they, uh, they're more empathetic, they have a greater capacity to and interest in attending to the nuance of your behavior rather than just what you say. So they look at tone and so on. Whereas the more thing-oriented individuals, when they're dealing with people, are more likely to simply deal with the with the, um, the more outward observable features of what you're saying rather than digging deeper. And so this um, leads to a capacity among person specialists 
in fields that require some degree of empathetic insight, uh, teaching, uh, social worker, psychologists, or at least clinical psychologists. And uh, the thing specialists have a very different way of looking at things. And the interesting thing is uh, you, you may find in some of the helping professions that the primary orientation is actually thing orientation. Dentists, for example, are <laughs> scored particularly high on my thing orientation scale, far higher than they did on, on person orientation, which may resonate for those of you who have ever had a root canal done with a decided lack of empathy. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, there's the, the, that debate in medicine right now. It's like, well, we should teach doctors how to be more empathetic and, you know, give the, the patient-doctor relationship needs to be better and more nuanced or whatever. But it's like, no, like if I'm dying, like I want house. Like I want Dr. House. Absolutely. I don't want him to yes. make me feel yeah. good. It's like, make me better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think the, the uh, one of the takeaways from this early work we did was that unlike our common conception that person orientation and thing orientation are the opposite ends of a single dimension. We found that they're actually independent of each other, or in our statistical terms, they're orthogonal. They're independent of each other. So it's possible to be low on both, to be high on one and low on the other, or to be what I call generalists, who are high in both. And uh, I find them particularly interesting. And in the medical field, I think it's terrific uh, to have generalists uh, who are able to establish that uh, relationship with the patient to listen instead of simply um, process information, but to listen deeply to the concerns of the patient, but then to be able to switch into seeing the, the presenting problem as a thing specialist so that you are able to look at it um, as, as a physical problem that needs to be solved. Uh, a house call, if you wish, uh, rather than the bedside manner. That ability to switch is really critical. Right. And I imagine generally women are personal specialists and men are thing specialists, or is that Yeah, right? it's, it's true. Person specialist scores are higher for women, thing more for men. But in terms of generalists, there's no distinction. So it's possible that you would find, uh, quite possible, that you would find an equal number of generalists among men and women. It's, it, it also plays into this whole notion of whether your orientation is exactly the same as your ability. You may be interested in things, but not necessarily have a great deal of, of ability in it. The interesting thing about thing orientation and women is that some colleagues um, at Purdue University have been looking at how it predicts women in, um, in the STEM fields. And thing-oriented women who go into the STEM fields are, first, they're more attracted into STEM fields, and secondly, they last longer in the field. And I think having that, that enjoyment of tinkering around with things is really crucial. So it's it's not necessarily a, a purely male phenomenon. And when women have high levels of thing orientation, it uh, augurs well for their performance uh, in the STEM fields, engineering, and so on. Right. And the same go for men. Like there's some men who are more personal oriented. Yes. And they would do better in a more like, you know, like a therapist or a teacher or a counselor or something like that. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the thing I think has 
really given people a lot of like incorrect ideas of what personality is. And these it's personality test. You've probably taken one online. You've probably been to some corporate retreat where you take a Myers-Briggs uh, personality test. Do these personalities test actually tell us anything useful about our personality? It depends which ones we're talking about. I've weighed in occasionally, and I do in the book about Myers-Briggs, and I've been enjoined by a number of Myers-Briggs practitioners in, in the last few months to realize that perhaps there are some more sophisticated practitioners of that approach. And I'm very willing to agree that many of them have a far more sophisticated and nuanced view about what personality is than those who actually use it uh, in a more informal and casual way. I think Myers-Briggs and other trait measures are useful to begin conversations about personality. As I mentioned in the book, people enjoy taking them. They're intriguing. People like to find out about where they stand relative to other people. But if people start to simply slot themselves into a hole, a pigeonhole, I, I really begin to worry. And so once you, you stamp your uh, Myers-Briggs code onto your forehead or onto your cup or onto your edible underwear, whatever it might be, we find that um, you start curtailing the, the possibilities you have in your life. And so I think that while it may begin a conversation, we need to have a broader conversation about things that really matter to you uh, rather than just the kind of type that, um, that you were designated as, ha- as having. Well, you know why I don't find them that useful? Every time I take it, it's different. It is. Right? Like one week I'll take it and I'll be an extrovert. And the other week I'm an introvert. Yep. And I don't know what's going on there. Well, the, the test, um, what we call the test retest reliability, that is uh, how you score on subsequent um, measurement with the scale, is, is not high. And in, indeed, if you, um, if you look at that reliability, it's not as high as some of the other personality test measures that, that, uh, that I do recommend. And I think that um, people become, because they experience what you did, they become skeptical of, of whether it points to anything uh, other than a kind of momentary tendency uh, when you're taking the, the test. I'm a bit more optimistic than thinking it's just chimerical. I think that if you look at it in terms of continuous scores, which some Myers-Briggs proponents do utilize, I should say. But if instead of looking at yourself as an introvert or an extrovert, and you shift around from, from May to June, if you look at the range of scores, and if you look at the continuous scores, uh, you may find greater stability. In fact, most of these personality traits are, are normally distributed, uh, so that most people end up in the, in the middle. And then it stems out symmetrically into, and into the extremes. And if you look at people's scores on some of the uh, more frequently used personality tests that psychologists use in their research right now, you find that very, very clearly. And I think those continuous measures of personality, particularly what are called the big five traits, are very useful. Yeah, we'll get into the big five here in a bit. One, one more critique of Myers-Briggs. Yeah. I just... I don't want to dog on Myers, but the other issue I've, when I've done those tests is that I found myself answering the questions in the way I think, or like I wanted to be 
Yeah. Right. Like I wanted to be this type. So I answered the questions in a way I knew would get me that. So I'm like, yeah. I don't know if that's how. So if the Myers-Briggs has those issues, like you you mentioned there's some tests that are actually more reliable that psychologists use. Which ones do you think are, are more useful? Uh, there, there are a bunch of them that go under the general rubric of big five trait measures. And you can, um, these are accessible online. If you just put in big five personality traits, um, you're able to access some of them. The, the the grandparent of them all is um, is called the Neo PI, and it's uh, developed by uh, uh, Paul Costa and uh, Robert McCrae, and they have um, uh, a long and and uh, very well researched measure that that is uh, that's a commercial measure, but some of the shorter measures are really um, are quite accurate in in depending where you stand on these big five dimensions of personality. And they're very consequential for predicting aspects of how we do in our lives. And what are the big five personality traits? Well, they spell out an acronym, which is OCEAN. So O stands for openness to experience in contrast to to, uh, more closed. Uh, C for conscientiousness in contrast to a more lackadaisical and informal way of managing yourself. E is for extroversion, in contrast to introversion. A is agreeableness, in contrast to disagreeableness. And N is neuroticism, in contrast to stability. Okay, and there's a big biogenic factor in our makeup of these different personality traits, correct? Yes, there is. Okay. Let's... And so in in this chapter about the big five, you go into detail because as you said, these traits can have a big outcome on our life. For example, you mentioned, you talk about conscientiousness in detail, but people who are, let's talk about what is conscientiousness in the first place? How do you define that? Uh, The conscientious individuals are are those who make plans and keep to them. They're able to focus very much on the task at hand. And so they're not diverted away by, uh, by other extraneous matters. And we find that they do better in their academic pursuits. They're more likely to be promoted in their organizations. And that is to be expected. What may not be anticipated as much, but which is clearly the case, is that they, uh, they are healthier and they, um, they uh, live longer. And I think the reason for this is, is that they take care of themselves. And when a a healthcare regimen is suggested to them by their physician, uh, they adopt it and they stick to it. And uh, I think that is uh, one of the reasons why they tend to uh, endure longer than those who are, who are less conscientious. So what do you do if you're not conscientious? Like you're not as conscientious as someone, you know, who can stick to those sorts of things. Cause I mean, I can see this having big, like, you know, policy ramifications. Like we, you know, if you're a doctor, you want your doctor, you want your patient to stick to a, a prescription medication regimen. But if they're they're not conscientious, like that's going to be hard to do. So like, what do yeah. you do yeah. about that? Well, well, that goes to the whole issue of how tractable are our traits? How much can we, um, can we shift them? And that's where we get into what I call a, a, a notion of free traits, where, um, while you may not be biogenically disposed to being conscientious, uh, you learn to act conscientiously in pursuit of a project that really matters to you in your life. 
uh, perhaps we're getting ahead of ourselves on this, but to me, we are able to do that, and it has uh, important implications for for how we live our lives. Okay, we'll talk a little more about these free trades and how we can not manipulate them, but you know, use them to leverage them is the word. So, like neuroticism is another one that can just lead to a lot of like a, a detrimental life. So, like, what are the downsides of being neurotic? They are disposed to feeling anxious, feelings of depression, of vulnerability in general. Uh, overly self-conscious, and consequently they have um, problems in the everyday carrying out of their projects and and tasks. But I do believe that there are some benefits as well. And the term neuroticism is is a bit unfortunate in a way. We're not talking about individuals who are clinically neurotic now, who have neuroses that require some mental health treatment uh, regimen. We're talking about individuals who have a disposition to feeling uh, vulnerable and and so on, short of a clinical condition. And one of the benefits of, of, of neuroticism arises if we think of them as being very sensitive individuals. And so they are often able to sense things going on, let's say in our organizations, that uh, others may be um, less sensitive to, things that are going wrong, things that are uh, potentially anxiety producing to all, but they see it first and they react first. And so they're like canaries in the mine. And I think that if we ignore the insights that neurotic individuals are are able to bring to, to the table, we miss something really potentially very important. And you see that in the arts as well, and the, the, the prototypical neurotic artists often will see, will sense things that are arising in the world that we need to attend to. And so I think it brings benefits that are often um, squelched when we focus only on the on the negative aspect of neuroticism. Right. And the other one is introversion, extroversion. That gets a lot of play. People are really obsessed with whether they're an introvert or an extrovert. And I know Susan Cain's book, Quiet, has really added to that conversation. But are there, I mean, a lot of people think that extroverts are the best thing to be because like you're sociable and everyone in your life at the party, but are there downsides of being an extrovert? Yeah, have you got 16 hours? (laughs) (laughs) It is such a, it is such an intriguing topic. And you're right, Susan Cain's book really raised the, the, the level of public discourse on the benefits and, and downsides of both introversion and extroversion. Her claim was that um, North American culture, particularly American culture, valorizes extroversion such that more introverted tendencies are are squelched and, and marginalized, particularly in the world of business and law, which she practiced uh, for years. And, um, and I think those are acute observations. There are benefits and and costs to being both of those. And, and let me deal first with, with extroverts. You're, you're right that they're more engaging. They, the, the biogenics of extroversion relates to what we call dopaminergic processes and in the brain. They, they seek out reward and they're excited by the possibility of reward. Uh, sometimes in doing that, they're a little oblivious to some of the downsides, the more punishment 
cues that could be lurking in the environment that introverts, or particularly neurotic introverts, would be very sensitive to. Extroverts have great memory, but it's just short-term, not long-term memory. They have um, a capacity to get things done quickly. They interact in such a way that they're very, very direct, and sometimes that gets things done but they run into difficulties when it comes into situations that require more nuance or holding back a more introverted response. Uh, and, um, and they can drive each other to distraction. The, the introvert tends to do things more slowly, but is higher in quality. They get things done more slowly, but, but more correctly uh, than, their, uh, than their extroverted peers. So there are just a, a whole diversity of ways in which they contrast. But if we're looking at our businesses or if we're looking at even our families, um, I think it's, it's possible to see strengths in both and that we, um, we need to um, respect those, those differences and not slot one group as, as inherently better uh, than the other. And if you go cross-culturally in many uh, Asian communities uh, overseas, and here I, I'm going to be vague because you really need to pin down whether you're talking about Hong Kong or Japan and so on, but broadly speaking, you find in some uh, Asian communities that, um, that they're worried if they're child is uh, too extroverted. They want them to learn to be more introverted, which is a big contrast, as Susan Cain would argue, with what is typically the case uh, in North America. Right. Um, so before we get to free trades, I think we need to discuss this yeah. idea of, because I thought this is one of the most fascinating parts of the book, this idea that situations and environments can shape our personality. And I, when I think, when I thought about it, I was like, okay, that makes sense. Cause the, the example, one of the examples you gave was the Milligram study that happened in the fifties yeah, where people, yeah, they were, they were told to shock somebody by this guy in a coat and to the point where like everyone pretty much killed the, <laughs> the person. Um, and so that was kind of an explanation of like why people were able to do the, the Nazi death camps and the Holocaust. But in other ways, like how 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 do how can our personality change depending on the situation? Um, any other examples? Yeah, I should point out for the record that they didn't actually kill them in the Milgram study. Right, uh, right. Just, just in case uh, <laughs> that got misconstrued by anybody. Uh, the um, uh, I do have another example, and I get into that in another uh, chapter of the uh, me um, uh, myself and us book um, that. Um, some individuals are particularly shaped by the environment or the context, whereas others allow their more biogenic personality to override the situation. And the um, dimension of personality that, uh, that captures this really nicely is called self-monitoring. And high self-monitors are those who shape their behavior to accord with the situation. And so when they go to a funeral, they act funereal. And when they go to a beach party, they act beach party. And they do not, if they're feeling particularly funereal that day, act so at a beach party. Whereas low self-monitors are those who know what they like, what, what they are like, and what their preferences are. And they are much more resistant to shifting their behavior uh, to accord to the situation that they happen to be in and, and the demands uh, therein. And this can lead to some really 
interesting and consequential conflicts between, for example, spouses. So a, a fellow may be a low self-monitor. He, he's dug and he's dug no matter where he is. He just acts dug. And he's never Dougie in a playful way, and he's never Douglas in an overly formal way. He's just plain Doug. His partner may well be a high self-monitor. And for her, let us say, she is um, appalled at what she sees as the rigidity of Doug. She says, it's a party. Can't you just loosen up and act as if you were at a party instead of expatiating on the value of a flat tax all evening. And Doug also has his concerns. He says, you know, I don't know who you are. You're this in situation A. You're something different in situation B. And I don't know who you are in situation C. I'm not even sure who it is I fell in love with. And they have this conflict that I think is, is, is not rare between those who believe that their biogenic self, who I am, rests in their fixed nature, and those who feel that we need to flex ourselves to the situations and the context we're in. It's, um, it's a protracted concern, and I think it can be solved or remedied by us realizing that there are these differences in personality regarding when we express our first nature, as I call it, or, uh, or we um, accommodate to uh, situations without being stand-up chameleons where we're just wishy-washy. Right. So this brings in another idea of, so like our environment can shape us. And I'm, what I'm trying to lead up to this idea, it's, we're going to get metaphysical here in a bit, because I think it goes to what your, your new, latest book, Who Are You Really, is about. So our environment can shape us. We have our genetics that shape us. But then you have this idea of free traits, which is basically our free will. Like we can decide that something's important, important and we can behave in a different way. So can you, you started talking about it a little bit, but can you expand on that? Somewhere? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad to come back to that because uh, I think it's, it's, it's crucial. Um, what I feel is, is really central to understanding what our personalities are, is, um, are the core projects in our lives, the personal projects to which we commit, and which give meaning and, and structure and shape to our lives. We're, we're not just a bunch of traits bouncing into situations and being propelled by the traits and, and shaped by the situation. I think each of us creates a series of projects in our lives, some of which come at us rapidly out of social demands, some of which arise out of our deepest strivings for how we want to be in the world. And those projects may sometimes cause us to, or impel us to act out of character. And acting out of character is a, is a really critical phrase for me, because it means two things. It means, on the one hand, acting in ways that go against our natural dispositions. So, good gosh, Chuck was really acting out of character yesterday when he danced uh, uh, on the table. But it also means acting on the basis of values that matter to us, on, on character. And a, a good example would be individuals who are biogenically rather introverted, but who have core projects in their lives 
that enjoined them to act in a more outgoing, dominant, and an extroverted fashion. And often, in sort of in the larger context of, of what your podcasts and your and your whole program is about, these are things which which as as guys we often need to do, and women as well. We need to rise to the occasion. We can't just retreat into our first nature. And in doing that, by acting out of character, we're engaging what I call a free trait. So uh, an introvert who has to, for whatever reason, in a project, act in an assertive and and an extroverted fashion, uh, is engaged in the free trait of, of, if you will, pseudo-extroversion. And this brings us a bunch of very positive things such as progress on the projects that matter to us in our lives. It also helps us grow into being something different than we, than we normally are, but there can be a cost and the cost is potential burnout. So the example I give in the book is, is my own behavior. I'm a, I'm a biogenic introvert from way back, I think in the womb. And uh, and yet, as a professor, it seems to me that my main job is to profess. And I adore my students. I love my field, and I can't wait to tell them what the field is about. And I can't wait to tell your audience what we're doing in our field of research. But my natural disposition is to be much more introverted. And so when I, at 8 o'clock in the morning, to keep my students excited, I stand on my head or whatever I need to do to get them up and engaged, I'm acting out of character. And I could do this, and I've done it for so many years now that it, 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 it's not that costly. But sometimes those of us who do that need to find restorative niches after we've finished. And particularly, let's say at the break in a lecture where I've got 15 minutes, unlike an extra, a true extrovert who would stick around with the students, I need to get away and uh, hide somewhere. and. Susan Cain, in her book Quiet, had a, a whole chapter that used as its leitmotif this funny little Canadian prof at Harvard who used to do this, and I resonated very much to that story, as it turns out. And um, we do this. Um, we find our restorative niches in which we um, are able to re- re- return to our biogenic nature, but by having those free traits. I think we uh, advance things that really matter to us in our lives. Okay. So I think this sets it up for the big question. <laughs> like, who are we then? Right? There's all, there's this big, you know, today there's like authenticity, right? Is the big buzzword. You got to be authentic, be true to yourself. But like, you've just told me we've had, I got uh, genes that sort of help determine sort of my base nature. These big five personality traits or play a big role. Um, yep. My environment can shape my personality. So I could be like introverted in one situation, but if you put me in another situation, I can be the life of the party. Yep. And I can decide, you know what, this thing is really important to me. I can override that. So which one's the real you? Like, yeah, that's, that's a great question. The, the book that comes out in, in a couple of weeks, um, uh, who are you really has a chapter on authenticity. And I, I really agree with you that, Authenticity is often bandied about without, I think, an awareness of some of the complexities that uh, attend it. And you've hit it r- right on the head. There are there are three claims to authenticity that I that I like to s- distinguish. First, there is biogenic authenticity. 
which is where you're true to your first nature. You're, you, you go to a party because as soon as somebody says party, you say, I'm in. And so you do it in an unreflective way, unreflective fashion. There is what I call, and you alluded to it by calling it uh, environmental, I call it sociogenic. That is, it arises out of our social cultural milieu that, in, that, that constrains us or encourages us to act in a particular way. And we may show fidelity to that. We may um, act in a particular way constantly throughout our life because that is what our family values are or what our religious tradition enjoins me to be or what a good physician acts like or a true lover. And those sociogenic influences may conflict with our biogenic. So we have uh, two warring claims to our authenticity. And finally, which you also alluded to, there is what I call idiogenic. It comes from the same root as idiosyncrasy. And idiogenic means arising from the personal projects, the singular claims that we have on ourselves in our lives, which also poses a challenge to our integrity. We may act out of integrity, we may act uh, in an authentic way, irrespective of its conflicting with our biogenic and our sociogenic claims, uh, because we can do no other. It is something that we deeply value in our lives. We are an adoring father. We love our kids. We may have a biogenic tendency to have a short temper and be crude and so on, we may have uh, a culture of people around us that encourage us to um, to act in a way that uh, is less than tender. But we have a core project that is um, sensitive to the needs for kids to be um, related to in a more gentle way. And so we do so. And it is, I think, that that idiogenic authenticity is in a way the real you. But if you don't have core projects in your lives that cause you to act in that fashion, you may end up as a default simply doing what you think is natural for you or doing what you think you have to do because of your culture. It's awesome. It, Brian, this has been a great, great conversation. And uh, there's so much more we could touch on in Me, Myself, and Us. We, could, we haven't talked about narcissism. We didn't even talk about the research that you found that ties your personality on based on you know, your preference of where you want to live, whether the city or the country. Um, a lot of fun stuff. And you got a new book coming out. Um, where can people go to learn all about this stuff? Oh, uh, thank you. It's um, the, uh, the the main book is Me, Myself, and Us, and it's accessible through all the major bookstores and websites. The new one uh, is a TED book, Simon & Schuster, and it comes out August 15th. It can be pre-ordered now, and uh, it's a shorter book. It's much shorter than the one that you've been drawing on, about 100 some odd pages, and it deals with just what we've been finishing on with the uh, three ways of, of being yourself. And I guess for a 15-minute, 15 15-second 15 overview of what I do, my TED Talk in, in TED 2016 called Who Are You Really is uh, probably the, the shortest and uh, simplest way of getting on top of this. I love it. Well, Brian, this has been a great conversation. What I love about your, the work is that it, it, I feel empowered. You know, it's like, okay, there's parts of me that I, I can't change, but there, there are things I can't control and that feels good. And I'm going to work on that. 
That's terrific. I'm delighted to hear that. Thank you so much. Brian Little, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. My guest today was Brian Little. He's the author of the books, Me, Myself, and Us, and also the recently published book, Who Are You Really? Both available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his work at brianlittle.com. Also check out our show notes for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic at aom.is slash personality. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, have gotten something out of it, you know, the episodes you've listened to, appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. And thank you to everyone who has given us a review. We really appreciate that. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.